Welcome to the Qualitative Applied Health Research Center's new series, Anti-Racist Qualitative Research. In this series, we look at whether, how, and to what extent qualitative health research can contribute towards anti-racist and decolonizing courses. We take a journey through qualitative research, exploring how theoretical framing, topic, process, results, sharing findings and impact can give a positive impact in the cause of anti-racism. So today we're very lucky we, uh, we have with us Wayne. Wayne, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, yeah. Hi, everybody. My name's Wayne Farrer. I'm a coordinator of the NHS Confederation BME Leadership Network. And um, I have over 20 years experience as a non-executive director within the NHS, sitting on various boards. I have a, a, a background as a, a as a policy officer, but have also worked extensively in the third sector and been involved in numerous community organisations and anti-racist campaigns. Great, thanks, Wayne. And just to start us off, what would you like to see from people doing health research using qualitative methods? From a sort of your perspective, being really you know, in tune with what's going on in the NHS as well. Yeah. I think for me, the, the, the most important thing is, is for people to actually start taking a very critical perspective on, how do we put it, on, 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 the, on what everybody thinks is kind of quite a comfortable debate. That um, I think, you know, the, the whole idea of, of what anti-racism is within the NHS or what anti-racism should be. I think people need to sort of be very critical in the way in which they look at the way the NHS frames its debates about anti-racism and what racial equality is. And I think too often we have things discussed in terms of disparities, um, which is obviously a very kind of quantitatively driven analysis tends to tends to dominate that and i and i think a lot of the a lot of what is being produced there just is just you know if you take large enough data sets you'll get variables variation in 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 outcomes and that's just a kind of function and too often what is then being presented as evidence of racism is i think abstract a historical and essentializing, and I think when we and that, I think those those things need to be challenged in terms of what's what's the comfortable dialogue, what's the comfortable you know uh, narratives within the NHS, which in my opinion take us too far into an accommodation with race science rather than. A race, a, a, a scientifically critical analysis of racism. So, I mean, if I, I mean, I, I kind of framed quite a lot of issues there that we might want to unpack, but that would be, you know, my overall view is we need to start challenging what I think is, is often a, a very wishy washy dialogue and narrative about what anti racism really means in the real world. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, loads to get into. So I wanted to go back to what you said around um, research and 
can be sometimes abstract or ahistorical or essentializing. So what do researchers have to do? What questions do they have to ask themselves to bring, for instance, history back into the conversation around racism in the health sector? I think the first thing to do is, is actually be very clear what definition of racism is being used. I mean, people like to talk about racism, but often they're very vague as to what that thing is. And when when they do kind of seek to define or, 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 or set down what their approach is, it is often a very psychological or personal-based analysis of racial prejudice that, that tends to dominate the conversation. And so we get into a lot of, you know, and, and, and this is, yeah, this is wider. You know, you get into a lot of conversations about, you know, what constitutes, was that a racist comment? Was that a racist this? Is that a racist the other? Okay. And, and so we, you know, we break, we tend to break things down into individual attitudes. And I don't think that necessarily takes us into the important issues. I'm not saying that individual experiences are, you know, should be totally neglected, but I think too often the individual experience is being extrapolated into meanings beyond where it should be going. And the big issues that are affecting black communities and the brown communities and you know, different communities as racialized communities are being missed because the tendency becomes to focus on, you know, what's happened to poor Megan and not the deaths of the next young black man in a, in a mental health setting. Okay, so should researchers then think about going beyond sort of individual level questions and analysis? Should they be, for instance, questioning how institutions are run, questioning management? What's the way forward? Yeah. I, definitely that that is you know we should be looking at individual cases individual experiences as an indicator of where we really need to to, to focus the research so it shouldn't it shouldn't the individual experience should be the starting point of building an, a, a critical analysis rather than simply the subject of the research so I think that that to me is the important bit, you know, we because otherwise you get a continuous repetition describing the problem and no clear insight into how we address the problem and how we go about creating the organizational or institutional or social changes that actually need to be brought about so that we begin to unravel that so that, you know, the, the the continuous focus. So you know, within the NHS, I'm I'm always critical that you know, the first thing that we that we hear when you know a another person has died or you know another horrendous way in which the NHS has failed to care for our most vulnerable, is you know oh we need some unconscious bias training or we need some sensitivity training or we need you know, which always brings it back down to the individual as the cause of the failure, yeah where you know the the organizational structures which have empowered that individual are left unexamined 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, and somebody's individual prejudice needs the organizational structure, needs the institutional arrangements to empower that individual prejudice. Yeah. And always focusing on the individual prejudice rather than the what gives that prejudice power, what gives that prejudice the ability to be worked out in an organizational institutional setting, what legitimizes, yeah, what is the what is the context of, of that individual's ability to abuse, neglect, or mistreat. Okay, so that's very helpful. I wanted to bring in an example from your work to see how that might actually look in terms of research. So you've done a very, um, you know, well-cited report on perspectives from the front line, the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on BME communities. Part of this, a big part of this was a lot of in-depth interviews with, uh, I think, various BME leaders um, and a bit broader than that too. So how did you take those interviews and those individual perspectives and build a more systemic critique? I think we we tried to do three things. First of all, in terms of the way we went about developing the topic guides. Yeah. We didn't just allow, we, we actually worked through what what actually are we talking about here? Yeah. We, we are, when, when, from 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 for us as researchers who are going out into the field, being very clear that what we were not looking to do was to just regurgitate what people had heard on on you know on on the nightly news. Yeah, we actually want because that that to me is too often the thing. You know, people ask what they think about something, and what they think about something is, is often not being subject to a great deal of reflection. So we actually tried to to work through a process. In terms of the topic guide, so that we were inquiring as to people's thoughts, not just asking what come off the top of their head. I think that the second thing that we did was we we then actually also went out and spoke to different communities. Yeah. So that we we had some prism in which to look at our analysis of what leaders in the health service were saying. Yes, they'd been at the front line, but you know, we couldn't. We didn't necessarily want to 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 allow that to be what was put forward as the explanation from the coming from the community. So there was actually a need to cross reference what our, our our leadership network was saying. Was you know we shouldn't take that we shouldn't take that for granted. And then in the third instance, what what we tried to do in the way we presented the report. Obviously, it's being is being prepared for you know other NHS leaders. So there was yeah, and there is a constant battle then between the way in which you you present things that will resonate with your audience, but you're very conscious not to allow the fact of who your audience is and what your audience will be comfortable with to become the ultimate prism through which you filter the research data. Okay, thank you. So maybe building on the last thing you said, I was curious about, I guess, how the report is framed. So it's very much using, for instance, the term BME. And I kind of wanted to ask, firstly, how you felt about that term and how that term might influence 
the sort of overall framing and how you communicate those findings to uh, NHS leaders? So, I mean, that's a, that's the terminology our network is set upon. Okay, and and I you know I just get like endlessly frustrated with this debate about terminology. And I wonder, I don't give a monkey's what you call me. What I insist on is you treat me as a human being, you treat me with dignity and respect. Okay, and you know that this whole framework about you know terminology. I mean, I you know I still just you know, I'm I'm old enough. I mean, I just come from an anti-racist movement where you know black people were involved in a were involved in a fight and we didn't have the luxury of being broken down into into ethnicities and and i always think that if you actually look at the evolution of racism in britain and this is where i come back to what i was saying about being ahistorical okay so we look at this yeah this whole debate about language in this you know in the sense of being ahistorical that where did this idea of ethnicity come from okay because race and ethnicity they're not real things okay there there's not they're not you, know, you you don't belong to a race yeah you don't belong to an ethnicity these are these are simply social structures that are created in order to achieve various social ends yeah but there's nothing there's nothing inherent in you as an individual um that is yeah you know, this is where i was i was talking about essentialism right there's no essential thing that makes you defines your ethnicity your ethnicity is not some primordial thing that that you know that you've inherited okay so these things are these things are worked out social structures for social objectives okay and if you look at you know the the where, where a lot of this comes from you look back to the 1961 immigration act okay which is where the fundamental nationalization of racism in britain occurred uh, which is when you had the complete framing of new commonwealth and old commonwealth yeah so the old commonwealth of the white commonwealth canada south africa yeah and the new commonwealth yeah was the black commonwealth yeah africa asia caribbean okay and that was where this was first codified into law yeah and then you look at you know the whole idea of how different communities were integrated on that basis yeah ethnicity was yeah the closer you looked to white the easier was your incorporation into the into the british immigration system okay and yeah so different communities were racialized slightly differently but it wasn't until after the brics and uprisings in the early 80s and then you know what we saw with the uh, the fight backs in in Brixton and Toxteth and uh you know all across the country but then you had the 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 Scarman report which is where they first introduced this idea of ethnic inequality okay so there was no institutional racism in the police what you had was this proposition of ethnic inequality okay so yeah when I, when I, yeah what the, these terminologies are are consistently fought over yeah and yeah the 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 fight should be about the racism and discrimination rather than the terminology that's that's great and so basically it's a bit of a distraction and if you are a health researcher dwelling too much on this isn't going to help your research as much as really just making a beeline for sorry go on. It, it may or it may not, 
Okay, it depends what your research is. Okay, but what what to me the big challenge is that too often and I'll go back to what I was saying about you know too often we're involved in in race science rather than the scientific analysis of racism. Is by that what I mean is yeah this whole idea that race is a biological construct. Okay, which was you know at the at the roots of the whole eugenics movement. Yeah. Which, which was why you saw what was happening, what, yeah, what ultimately led us to the Nazi death camps, but which was evolved in America and Britain, yeah, was rooted in the scientific method. Yeah. Voltaire, you know, all these guys at UCL, yeah. UCL have been through its big decolonizing moment, hasn't it? Because of, yeah, having to change names, the Galton, yeah, all these guys who were the eugenics guys who were, you know, the social Darwinists. Yeah, who were, you know, based their idea that actually there was a hierarchy of human beings, and guess what? They were all at the top. Okay. Where, you know, so so this whole idea of race science, which was yeah, evolved as the scientific method evolved. And it was, you know, the scientific method was used to justify colonial colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade. Of course, black people are slaves. They're black, therefore they're slaves. This is the biological inheritance. Yeah. And of course, we're in charge. We're white. We're born to be in charge. Okay. And this you see creeping increasingly into the NHS. Yeah. As, 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 you know, there's been a whole, you know, the race realist political movement. Okay. Which is uh, normalizing that racism. And that's very prevalent within cu the current government and terminology. Yeah. Um, and I think you can, you can see that in, you know, Boris's. Ethnic report, right? Um, this this idea of essentializing race, but calling it ethnicity. And to me, ethnicity is just race dressed up as culture. Okay, it's trying to essentialize us and say there that our inequality arises not because of social, economic, and political processes, but because of our inherent biological weaknesses. Okay. And this, I mean, I mean, obviously the bell curve being the, the kind of, you know, the, 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 the ultimate expression of this. But behind that is a whole series of, of, of documents, research reports, et cetera, et cetera, which are based on that premise. Yeah. And I think, you know, too often the NHS is reproducing this because it's, it's slipshod and wishy-washy and it's not really thinking the issues through because it's, Taking racism as abstract, ahistorical, and essentialist. And that's why we end up, you know, with a situation where say, oh, yeah, African Caribbeans have hypertension, Asians develop diabetes. Okay. Now that should be the starting point of our conversation because there is nothing biological that rests in that term African Caribbean or rests in that term South Asian. So what is going on that lasts behind those immediate figures? But everybody can get quite well off as researchers just continuously to reproduce more evidence that that is what happens rather than saying that's happening. How do we understand that other than to simply ascribe that to some biological essentialism which doesn't exist? Thank you. And also supposedly the other follow question is how can we do something about it? And that kind of brings me a bit to um, 
another guide you've uh, you've written on combating racial discrimination uh, against minority ethnic nurses, midwives, nursing associations. So can you talk me a bit through how the you know what questions did you ask to get answers around how you combat uh, racial discrimination in NHS settings? So I think I think that that was that wasn't an um, that that's kind of been a guide that's been gener generated by us collecting the views of 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 nursing leaders. Okay, so so that well, yeah. So I think I'm slightly different, and that that's a that that's a draft document at the start of a process to get us something that could be released to nurses on the front line, so that we could then evolve the document so it became a really meaningful document. So I think that document is still in the process of being developed. So it isn't, you know, it's a starting point rather than the rather than the end point. So we've got a we've got a whole process that we're working through over the next four to six months that will that will you know be doing that. But I mean we did commission some research uh, you know to to from King's around you know what 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 was being said around health systems around the world about these issues. Great, thanks. And just to, I guess, because this podcast is trying to think a bit about the starting point, as you said, and you kind of said, you know, the starting point uh, needs to be a bit beyond, okay, there are differences in health outcomes and, and trying to get to a bit more of the why and uh, maybe the how and what to do about it. Um, so I kind of wanted to get at what sort of research projects would you want to see qualitative health researchers doing you know we have a listener base most of whom are qualitative health researchers what what questions aren't they asking that perhaps they should be i think it's three things i think yeah it's kind of it's kind of getting into to, to the, the the question of what is what is what is the what is the the accepted wisdom yeah and I think it's kind of like, well, why is that the accepted wisdom? Why? <laughs> because so through, throughout the NHS, we we continuously see reports. So let, let, let let's take an obvious one: the yeah, experiences of, of of black men in mental health services. Yeah, consistently being reported. I mean, I remember back to you know the 1980s campaign, you know, around Cartoon Campbell. Consistently being reported, yeah. Much later access, more likely to be sectioned, you know, more likely to to, to you know to 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 receive a whole series of negative experiences and you know and have worse outcomes. Yeah. So, what's the benefit of another report telling us that that's the experience? Yeah. Where what might be helpful is. What has happened to all the all the reports from the last forty years, and why have none of them actually made a difference to the outcome for these people? Yeah, and you, yeah. What what is the link, for example? Oh, we see far worse outcomes for black women, South Asian women in maternity. Yeah, being reported for years. Well, what what's going on there? Why 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 are we not looking at the relationship between that and the Windrush legislation? Yeah, 
you've got if you were the NHS claims to be an anti-racist or committed to anti-racism, but the legislative program says that we are required to discriminate. Okay, or yeah, and so uh, yeah, that that we rerun the hostile environment. Yeah, we've seen the NHS turning out sick people with cancer and letting them die. Right, that's what we do. We've thrown our employees out of jobs. Right. So um, what kind of impact is that having on people who came into the NHS because they actually wanted to look after anybody and everybody? But now they're also having to be immigration controls. What, what's the, what, what does that mean to them? What does that mean to their Hippocratic oaths? What does that mean to their, their, their ethical concerns? Yeah. What what is being what what does that mean in terms of the cognitive dissonance? If we want to get into yeah the psychology of this thing, why aren't we talking about what happens to people? So so it's a different way of framing it, yeah. But as, as racism is you know is a is about what is being done to people, not how people feel about what somebody says about them or how they describe them or what box they've got to tick. Right? I'm not I'm not dismissing that, but I'm saying if we're focusing on that. At the same time as the NHS is leaving people with cancer to die, we're missing a trick. There's a racism that discriminates that must be challenged, but there's the racism that kills. And we mustn't lose sight of that fact when, yeah, when we are concerning ourselves. You know, I remember I was, all the debates that we were having during COVID. Yeah. Oh, well, yes, we were seeing where COVID was, was striking first. Okay, and there was no surprising that. I think Marma had said, you know, the data will tell you where you are the poorest, the most vulnerable. That's where it will do the most damage. Okay, but it was like not every black person was was at risk. I wasn't at risk. The NHS had me set up on my computer. I spent, you know, the lockdown fine. Anything I needed, I got. I got a good job. I live in a nice big house. I'm not overcrowded. Anything I needed. Somebody, some some poor person would bring to my door. Okay, so we got to we got to stop looking at the problem as those who have power would like us to look at it, and start looking at the question of, well, what are the questions those who have power would not like us to ask? What are the questions that those people who are actually on the rough end of this of, of this brutality? What are the questions they would like us to ask to the people who've got it comfortable and are well off? And I think, you know, if we if we look at you know the the, the NHS, I mean, you know, we we look back to all look at look at all the crises that we've had over the last twenty years. Yeah, every you know the South Staffordshire, yeah, Bristol Royal Infirmary, you know, all these huge catastrophes that the NHS has shown itself to be brutal. In treating the most the most vulnerable in our community, yeah, brutal in its disregard, yeah, brutal in you know letting people dehydrate, yeah, and then we look back and we say, well, what's going on here? Yeah, we have to we actually have to start questioning, you know, beyond the NHS's, you know, we're wonderful, we're inclusive. Well, actually, all evidence to the contrary, yeah, we have lots of examples here, and I suspect that when we look at when we look at the, the data about racial disparities and we look at the data about 
what kind of what kind of service is being delivered to the poor? We will end up having to take a look back, right back to the Black Report in 1980s, which first laid out all this data about health inequalities. And even further than that, the whole idea of the inverse care law. Yeah? The greater the need, the less resources go into. And what the yeah, that was quite simply, you know, the marketization of healthcare leads to the concentration of health resources to those people who have the least need. Yeah. And since 1980, since 1979, every government has been involved in further marketization of the NHS. And lo and behold, as they've done that, the services and the care to the most vulnerable and the most disadvantaged of all colors, all races, all ethnicities has got worse. And yet, where is the research on this? The research is all about describing, oh, look, here's another example of where these poor people didn't get a good deal, rather than this is what is driving the NHS away from its core principles. Thank you so much for that. That's really, really key. And I hope our listeners are are taking that in. I wanted to just, I guess, follow up on this and say, it seems to me that you need a good knowledge as of uh, politics and political history as a qualitative health researcher if you're going to do effective work. So is one of the points coming out of this that we perhaps need broader skills, broader education? You can't teach qualitative re- health research in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah, for, for, for sure. And, you know, and I, and I think, you know, we're, we're all... We're all kind of, we, and we all go through a process, don't we? You know, as I mean, education's about teaching more and more about less and less, isn't it? Uh, on, on one level, yeah, that, that we become so focused in on on the specifics of, of of the subject that there is always that need to actually, where are we getting? Where do we where do we get in the alternate view? Yeah? How how far are we all? Yeah. How far as researchers and academics is everybody comfortable with, you know, their own grand narrative? Yeah, you know that, that, that so every you know I'm I'm talking about the the NHS because you know that's where I'm located. But you know when I when I when I worked in a, in the education system, I, you know was 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 similarly challenging because you know these things are happening, you know, ac- you know across the narratives. Yeah, these narratives, these common narratives are being developed. And, you know, we do have to look outside of, you know, where's the alternative view here? Where, you know, where, where is, you know, if every, you know, if we're, if we're only looking at one analysis of, of racism, where, 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 where else should, might, what might we be looking? I mean, I, you know, I've been involved with the Institute of Race Relations for many years. And so I, you know, I come from a, I've been educated, you know, um, in anti-racist campaigns through, through the eighties, you know, so some of that, some of that come through when, you know, that was, that was before we had the internet folks. There really, there really was a time and I'm old enough to remember. Um, yeah, that actually you had to get out, you had to be organizing in communities. You had to be working with communities. And I think that, you know, if, if, if you're not, 
an anti-racist campaigner, an anti-racist organizer, I don't think you can be an anti-racist researcher because knowledge is not produced in the academy. Knowledge is produced in communities by those who are being impacted by the discrimination and the prejudice that the academic wants to talk about. But if you're not there with people and your research is, you know, there's an old adage, the people that you write for are the people that you fight for. And I think as a researcher, you know, if, if you're only writing to impress those people further up the chain rather than to empower those people below you, your ability to produce effective anti-racist research will be severely curtailed. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. I just wanted to end. I think that's a perfect note to end on, by the way. But the final question is just if someone is interested in doing anti-racist qualitative health research, if they are trying to take on some of the points you've made throughout this podcast, what resources, are there a few key resources that they can go to, have a read and start the process of educating themselves more widely? Well, I mean, yeah, as I, as I said, you know, but you, it, the Institute of Race Relation would be the first place. Uh, and, and I would say that, wouldn't I? I yeah, I, 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 yeah a, lot of, a lot of my education has come through the Institute. But there would all you know, there. There are also like lots of uh, of resources on the internet. I mean, I, I think you know when I when I'm looking at some of this, I think some of the some of the best stuff that I'm seeing, for example, coming out of the of the USA. I mean, I know you know that's kind of I'd be critical about our our tendency to look, but I, I think um, if you if you look at, at the work that. Barbara, Barbara Fields and her sister have been doing the Field Sisters. That yeah, they 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 they're doing they're doing some some really good work as a sociologist and a historian. Uh, two sisters working together, um, and I think you know if you look up the Field Sisters, Google the Field Sisters, you'll you'll see a lot of their stuff. I think Adolf Reed is producing is producing you know a lot of stuff that that I found particularly informative. You know, and I, I think you know there, there, there would, there would be, you know, the two, the, the, the Field Sisters and Adolf Reed, in terms of the USA, would, you know, I think if you, if you Google them, they will start generating some, taking you down to all, you know, potentially interesting routes. Particularly some of the stuff Adolf Reed has, has done about health disparities and racial disparities in terms of, um, you know, deaths in police custody and, and that kind of thing. I think he brings down a, a really interesting. Um, analysis, but I, you know, I think there there are so many um, organisations that are deeply rooted in in their communities. I mean, the monitoring group, Southall Black Sisters, you know, they're, they're, these these organisations that are deeply rooted in their communities. That yeah, you know, if you're going to be looking at you know what's go, what's going on in a particular area, you know, obviously you've got the Grenfell. Networks as well, you know, they, they, they're, they're deep-rooted community organisations that can be a place for you to go to check out your thinking quite early on. So I think you know, the, the get get in touch 
you know, use the resources at the at the institute, you know, but also use the resources of the communities around you and make the effort to reach out to those communities because they just might give you a different a different lens to look at the problem through. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I love that idea of good places to check out your research, like see if you are in tune with um, the people you you would like to fight for, I think is uh, an excellent piece of advice. So thank you so much, Wayne. That was really, really excellent. I learned a lot from it. And thanks to all our listeners. Next episode, we are going to be drilling down into the research process uh, with Dr. Gargi Ahmed talking about reflexivity and how identity might affect the process of doing anti-racist research. So please join us there. Thank you so much. <laughs>